The world we live in is a mess. I don't think any of us would argue about that for a moment. We may have differences of opinion about what the mess exactly is, but I think pretty much consensus as I see it, that the world's a mess. And the thing about that is that every one of us, I suspect, has something in our minds about how we could make it better. We all have ideas of of how we might make the world a better place. Ideas that would make the world a better place. In many ways, this is really the underlying idea of every political platform. Every candidate in every election, wherever it is and whatever it is, every candidate is saying, if you vote for me, I will make the world a better place. I have a program, I have an idea, I have a strategy to, to help you, to help others, depending on the context of the election, to help the people who are involved in whatever form of life that my campaign might touch. I can make the world a better place. And we are attracted to that because we all want the world to be a better place. And so does God. God didn't create the world to be the mess that it's in. God didn't create the world to be a place of suffering and abuse and greed and people grasping for power and trampling over others and manipulating them and using them and corruption and all the things about our world, sinfulness and and all the things that come to our mind when we think of the mess that the world is in. God did not create the world that way. And God's desire is because of, even though it was our sin that got the world into this mess, God's desire is to see it different. And Psalm 72 is one of the places in Scripture where we get a glimpse of what God wants the world to be. This is a Psalm of Solomon. It doesn't give us any context, but I suspect... It is a psalm that Solomon writes as he is ascending the throne of Israel. It it just has the feel to me of something you would write as you're getting ready to start. It reminds me a lot of Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles 7, where that famous line, If my people will humble themselves and pray, God will hear and heal their land. This is a prayer for, for the king as the king ascends the throne. And it makes sense that you would pray that prayer at the very beginning. And it really is a prayer. Now, we may look at this and think it's a prayer of the king. It's about the king. The whole thing is related to the king. It doesn't really have anything to do with us. Except that in Israel, the king was really representative of God to the people. And and God's design for the king was to live in such a way and to act such a way that the people would follow suit. And that the king would be so connected to God and such a godly king that the people would want to be like the king. And so every time that there is a prayer or a word from the king about how to live, the people tend to follow suit. And that's in the good times and that's in the bad times. And it means that this is not just a word for the king. It is a word that the king is modeling so that the people will live this way also, which means it's a word for you and me as much as anybody else. And the king's prayer starts with this word. 
May God give the king a love for God's righteousness and justice. The king says, give me and give my people a love for God's justice and righteousness. Now, I don't think any of us would say we vote for injustice. But the question is, do we love God's justice? Do we love God's righteousness? Is it the desire of our hearts that we would see God's justice and righteousness come to this world? Now, we may have different opinions of what justice and righteousness is, and Solomon gives us a definition of what he's talking about. And he's really talking about how we treat the people who are most vulnerable in our society. How do we treat the people who society pushes to the fringes? How do we treat the people that that society calls insignificant, unimportant, meaningless, worthless? How do we treat those people? What do we think about them? Do we care about them? Do we want God's justice for them? Do we want to see God's righteousness poured out in their lives as much as in our own? Do you have a passion for them? Verse 14, Solomon says that the reason we feel this way about the people who are poor and needy and powerless and and on the fringes and vulnerable is because their lives are precious to God. God looks at them, and while we may say they're insignificant and they're unimportant and worthless, God says, those people are precious to me. And the calling for God's people is that they become precious to us. If something is precious to us, we protect it, we care for it, it. we treat it in a way that we don't treat things that are not important to us. And so... We lock our homes. Well, some people do in Houghton. Not everyone does, but we lock our homes to protect our precious things. It would break our hearts if someone took them or if we lost them. They're important to us. They're precious to us. And we will do a lot to protect things that are precious to us. Our children are precious to us. It's one of the reasons why we do all of these ministries for children and youth is because they are precious to us and they are so important to us that we will do everything we can to nurture them in the faith. And we will sacrifice for them and we will give ourselves for them because they're precious to us. And so when we talk about getting involved in these ministries, we're simply saying, do what God has laid on your heart to do about people who are precious. They're important to us. And we don't do it begrudgingly. We don't think about these people who are precious to God and who are needy. Begrudgingly, we do it with hearts open like God does. What I find interesting is that you go through this passage, you find that when the king has this perspective, when the king loves God's justice and righteousness, when he has the heart of God toward the neediest people, everybody flourishes. Everything flourishes. And the reason there is so much uh, pain and anguish and, and famine and drought and difficulty in this world, the primary reason is because we have created an atmosphere of greed. We've created an atmosphere of selfishness. 
And we have corrupted what God has made. But when your mind changes, when you take on God's perspective about justice and righteousness, things have a tendency to flourish. In verses 6 and 7, Solomon talks about this, may the king's rule be refreshing like spring rain on freshly cut grass. Like the showers that water the earth. There is something about that image that I, that's just spoken to me as I've been pondering this. About the presence of God's people in the midst of all the chaos and mess and, and, and trouble of our world. When we, when we interject ourselves into this world, does our presence bring refreshing to those situations? Do people walk away from us feeling more refreshed rather than less? After an encounter and a conversation with us, do, do people walk away feeling more loved or less loved? More hopeful or less hopeful? What kind of presence are we bringing to the burdens and the concerns and the needs of our world? How do people, do people see us as agents of refreshing or agents that deplete them and circumstances. Now, I know often we will say, well, you know, when you speak the truth, which we're called to do, when we talk about righteousness, which we're called to do, people are not going to like that. They're not, they don't like the ways of God, and so they're going to be angry, and they're going to be upset, and, and, they're, and they're not, we're not going to bring them a positive experience. And, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. That is sometimes and maybe often the case. But I think sometimes we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, is it the truth that's doing that, or is it our is it us? Are, are we more interested in our agenda than we are the truth? And we all get wrapped up in that. Are we more interested in convincing people to think like we think or or to lead people to Jesus? To help them see Jesus. What's our motivation behind it? Is our motivation compassion or is it vengeance? At the end of, of this psalm, uh, he talks in verse 17 about, about how the, when all this happens with the king, not only is everything flourishing, but all the people are, are, are brought into the blessing of God. And the message, it says that people are brought into the circle of God's blessing. What a beautiful picture. And I think one of the ways we... We judge, we test our hearts about the difficult issues we may have to address, address in culture. Is do people, do, do we have a spirit of our goal is that people would be embraced in the circle of God's blessing. That our goal is not to win, our goal is to love. Our goal is not our agenda, our goal is to see people's lives transformed by the grace of God in Christ. We may say the same words but it's the spirit in which we say them. It's the motivation of them. I, I keep coming back to the image of Jesus in the Gospels. And no one speaks the truth with more clarity than Jesus does. Jesus is all about the truth. And yet you see people flocking to him. And usually it's the people who are on the edges of society. It's the people who commit some of the, uh, the, the social sins of that culture. There is something about the way Jesus speaks the truth 
that doesn't repel them, it attracts them and leads them to the refreshness of his spirit, if I can use that word. I was reading recently about how the government in Russia over the last few years has been concerned about the growing number of non-government organizations present in their nation and wanting to, to bring those more into their, into their own work. And so they've been creating scenarios that make it difficult for NGOs to stay there, and two-thirds of them have left. And some of the other Soviet states have followed suit, but the Ukraine has not. In fact, just recently, the president of Ukraine uh, signed a bill, not just making it possible, but, but asking, begging the, uh, the, the people, the Christians there, to cre- start Christian schools. And someone in the know said, the reason why this is happening is because the most respected institution in the Ukraine is the church. Wow. That says something about their presence in that place. But let's bring that closer to home as you think about how we do or don't bring refreshing to circumstances of life. Last week, Cindy and I were up in Buffalo and we were shopping at tops, I think, and, and uh, we were, had gotten our stuff and we were in li- getting in line. And of course, choosing a line is always a thing for us because whatever line we choose, you know that's the one that they're going to need a price check, the tape's going to run out of the machine, they, need, they forgot something, going to run and get it. In fact, we've come to the conclusion that it's because we got into that line that all those things happen. I don't know if you have that experience, but when I want to turn to people behind us sometimes and say, you know, you really don't really know what you've gotten yourself into here. You should probably go find another line because we're more than likely going to be here a while. But this day, it wasn't like that. We were in line and things were moving along. And all of a sudden, I heard a little bit of a commotion behind me at the aisle next to us. And I sort of turned to look to see what was happening. And something had gone wrong with the computer and the cash register. And uh, the person running the register could not figure out what was going on. And they were calling, you know customer service people and assistant managers and the manager and maintenance people and nobody could figure out. They're all huddled around this computer trying to figure out how to make it work and all the while the woman who's shopping is standing there like, uh, I don't know what to do, I'm embarrassed. But she didn't do anything. And then I heard the voice of a gentleman who was behind her in line and you could sense him getting more and more irritated. And he was talking to his wife, but he was really talking to everyone around us, particularly the top store people, saying, this is ridiculous. I can't believe they're not opening another line. This is crazy. I can't believe this. And on and on, whining and complaining and getting more intense and louder as it went along. And I'm thinking, man, what is wrong with that guy? And I'm thinking to myself, two thoughts came to my mind as I'm listening to this take place. One thought was, I feel sorry for the woman who's been stuck in line and can't do anything about it with her order. And I feel sorry for the tops people who are doing everything in their power to try to get this thing to work. But I don't feel a bit sorry for the guy waiting in line behind her. And then the second thought that hit me was this. How many times I've been that guy? Impatient, Frustrated, irritated. There's absolutely nothing anyone can do. It's just something that happened. But I have been that guy in line who has been upset and vocal and and all of those things. And instead of creating an atmosphere of calm and peace, I've upped the ante of the anxiety. 
And in that moment, I, I, I prayed, Lord, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to be the person in these situations who can laugh about it, who can bring a sense of peace and calm and, and joy in the midst of something that is just happening. I want to be the person that goes to a store where people know me and when they see me coming to check out, they're happy for me to come to their line as opposed to trying to figure out how they can go on a break right then. But it's not just about bringing it closer to home, it's really bringing it home. Because the one place where we are called, we know, to be a presence, to create and to nourish an atmosphere of, of refreshing and nourishing is in our homes, in our dorm rooms, with our colleagues, with our neighbors, with those people who see us maybe outside of the facade and the persona that we often live with in our lives. And when we, when we are a part of a gathering, whether it's in our homes or in a dorm room or in an apartment or in our neighborhood, when we enter, there is like spring rain on mown grass. It's refreshing. I think there are a couple of things that always have to happen for us to create this kind of atmosphere, that we love God's justice and righteousness so much, we have the heart of God so clearly, that we bring this kind of flourishing and refreshing atmosphere. And I think one of the things is patience. We live our lives between the now and the not yet. And that's a hard place to be. It's hard to be patient between the now and the not yet. We read a psalm like this and it's really talking about ultimately the not yet. And we want it to be now. We want things to happen immediately. We know the 19th century revivalist movement did a lot of good things for us about the the power of God to change lives and to do things in, in the world. But one of the drawbacks is that it created this mindset that everything God does should be instantaneous and in the moment. And we become impatient when it doesn't happen. Something is wrong. But when I read the scriptures, I find God being far more patient than I am. Far more patient than I kind of would like for him to be. When you read the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. It's awesome. And then Genesis 3, sin enters the picture and messes it all up. And if it were up to me, Jesus would come in Genesis 4. Why wait till Matthew 1? I don't really know, except God is patient. And that ultimately, when you get to the book of Galatians, Paul says, at just the right time, Jesus came. And you have hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years of God working with people, investing in people, being patient with people. It's what it looks like to be connected to God. That patience. And being patience creates trust. And trust creates relationship with God. And it's in relationship with God that we begin to experience what God created us to experience. And the second thing is humility. I think patience and humility are two sides of the same coin. You really can't be patient without being humble. And you really can't be humble without being patient. 
and humility that we see in Christ as he goes to the cross, as he, as he reveals to us, this is how you change the world. A sacrifice. A humility. Costly humility. But I, as I think about it, humility it didn't start when Jesus came. God's always been humble. It's a part of his nature. It took humility on God's part to create human beings. And even more humility on God's part after human beings sinned to still connect himself with them. To humble himself to choose someone like Moses who was a murderer to lead his people out of Egypt. And to connect himself with the Israelites and this ragtag group of, of sinners who keep rejecting him, rebelling against him. And he keeps coming back to them and loving them. And now it's the church that God would humble himself in such a way that he would say, those are my people. Really? Us? Are you kidding me? That, that's the spirit of God. And that's how the world gets changed. The kind of humility that is willing to risk and pay the price and love through the grace of Jesus. Ultimately, this is really about bearing the image of Jesus. We can't change the world on our own. There's not a person that exists that's that good. It's about praying for God to give us the heart of Christ. The eyes, the ears, the, the, the persona, the attitude of Christ in us. One of his books, Andy Crouch, makes this provocative statement. God's intent from the very beginning was to fill the world with idols. God's intent from the very beginning was to fill the world with idols. Images. Not of wood and stone, not of gold and silver, but of flesh and blood. Hands and feet. Eyes and lips. Genesis tells us God created us in his image. And one of the reasons God does not want Israel to make images of him is because he already made an image of him. It's all of us. And people who and the people of God bear the image of God. Followers of Christ are followers of Christ because we bear the image of God, Christ in us. And that image leads us to actually be people who live for the glory of God as he works his work in transforming this world. We come to the end of this psalm and there are two words that the congregation says in response to what Solomon has written, Amen and Amen. So be it. Let it be. Everything you've prayed, Solomon, that's what we want too. That's our declaration. Let it be so. But to pray, let it be so, is to say, God, make me that kind of person. Do in me what you want to do. 
And as we come to this table, we come to this table celebrating who God is and what he's done for us. And we come celebrating the privilege that is ours in Christ. To actually be agents of flourishing and restoration and reconciliation and refreshing to this needy, broken, messed up world. What would the world look like if all of God's people prayed that prayer? If all of God's people every day said, Lord, this is who I want you to make me. Shape me in your image. Fill me with your spirit that I might reflect who you are in this world. I think that's our calling. That's our hope. That's our great privilege. Let's claim what God wants for us. Holy Father, we thank you for this privilege you've given us in actually bearing your image through Christ. Make us people who love your justice and your righteousness. Make us people who who want to reflect Christ in us more than anything else. And to be agents of what you want to do in this world. We pray, Father, that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink, it will be food for our souls in celebration of who you are and of all that you've called us and equipped us to be. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.